periodically I revisit the subject of tonight's talk and and look over over the, the topic, look over notes that I might have and rework them and and often it seems like when I give this talk I'm often I come away feeling a little somehow dissatisfied, like it's dry and boring and awful. But um, so be prepared for that possibility. But um, but then I decided I was telling someone today that my my criteria for a successful uh, talk of this kind is if one person hears one thing that is useful. So um, I hope that's true tonight. And maybe even more than one person, that would be a bonus. But I, I want to talk about it because it's a teaching for two reasons, I guess. The, the primary one is that it's a teaching that I personally have found very, very helpful in my meditation practice. And uh, when I remember it, when I come back to it, it has um, been very, very important and useful for me at times. And, and it draws directly on uh, the, the, the Buddha's teachings uh, in the Satipatthana Sutta for us, one, one part of that. And I think it's always good to, to go to these uh, core instructions uh, straight from the Buddha to actually look at what he uh, spoke about in his instructions to us. So that's, that's why I want to uh, offer this, these reflections tonight. There's one, um, one place, the only place that I've found uh, in, the, in the collection of the texts where the Buddha made this statement, these two, two short statements, it's in the Anguttara Nikaya. Kind of interesting, um, I think maybe deceptively simple, possibly very profound statements. He said in this place, uh, luminous bhikkhus in talk, talking to uh, the monks, but bhikkhus is any one of us, means one who's practicing. Luminous bhikkhus is this mind, but it is clouded by adventitious defilements. Luminous bhikkhus is this mind, and it is freed from adventitious defilements. Now this word adventitious might need some definition. It's not one we tend to use a lot. It's it's dictionary definition means something that is not intrinsically or inherently a part of an essential part of something's nature. So visiting, we could say it's something that visits that comes in there. So we might wonder what he would be pointing to in these two simple statements, you know, this choice of describing the mind as luminous. We might be able to get some sense of what he was pointing to when we look at the second half of each of these statements because they both begin the same way. Luminous is the mind. In the first, it's described as clouded or covered or affected by these visiting energies. He used the word defilement. That's a translation of the word kilesa. And in the second one, it's freed from these same energies. In, in each case, whether it's affected by them or free from them, this uh, inherent luminous quality of mind remains the same. It's, it's the same in either case, right? It's not, um, 
the nature, it's pointing to the fact that the nature of, of mind has this luminous or brilliant or um, whatever words we might use there. It has this inherent intrinsic quality that may be at times covered up by certain visiting forces or energies that come, but it's not changed by those. They don't point to anything inherent in, in the nature of mind. They cover that over, like clouds cover over the clarity of the sky, you could say. So it's important to notice and to remind ourselves that these, these kinds of difficult uh, forces or energies or mental qualities, these root causes of suffering in, uh, of greed, hatred, and delusion, and all their different manifestations of uh, desire and wanting and ill will and fear and doubt and uh, dullness and all of the things that, that mess us up if we let them when they arise in the mind, that they are just visiting and they don't, they don't while they may obscure this clarity of mind, they don't change its fundamental nature. So in, 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 uh, in looking at this, these statements and this subject, I think it's worth looking at, at the word mind, what we call mind, what we mean by mind, what is the luminous mind, what is that? You know, we can look all over and not find it very easily, right? What is the mind? So if we look at our experience, at what we can know in any moment, if we get very simple with that, we see there's one of six things that we can know or be aware of. Contact at one of the six sense doors or sense bases. So there's contact at the eye seeing consciousness, we can know sights, sounds, feelings in the body, tastes, smells. We can know objects that contact the mind in the realm of thoughts, emotions, all of this, right? Everything that arises in the mind. It all arises in the mind, but, but that realm of mentality. These, one of these six things, that covers everything. There's nothing that we can know that falls outside of, of one of those. Places. And so, and these are constantly being touched. We're very sensitive beings. And so there's this contact and knowing. So our experience of life is this contact at one of these sense bases and then the mind knowing that. And so what we call mind then is this process of contact and the knowing consciousness arising in response to that contact. That's what we can find there. They are co-arise. We tend to attribute a kind of thingness to that. We tend to turn that process into a thing, into something with some uh, inherent or ongoing substance or existence. But if we look, we can look all over as much as we want to. We can't find a thing outside of or independent of this process. So what we call mind then is, maybe it would be minding would be a better, maybe a verb form somehow. It's this process, it's it's this ongoing thing that just happens, right? Like we don't have to 
use an act of will to get this to happen. When there's contact, knowing arises. It's just the nature of it. It's the nature of the beast there. The nature of, of mind is this knowing. So then to get to the Buddha's instructions to us in the Satipatthana Sutta that I mentioned, uh, I was looking at tonight, in the third establishment of mindfulness, citta nupasana, mindfulness of mind. The Buddha begins uh, this discussion, and this is actually kind of a short, it's a relatively short section in the, in the Satipatthana Sutta. And the Buddha begins it with, as he often does with these kinds of teachings, with a a kind of rhetorical question. Starts out, and how does one abide contemplating mind as mind? How do you do it? And then he goes on with a series of instructions. And the first of these, the first section of this, one understands mind affected by desire or lust or craving, wanting, grasping this quality. One understands a mind affected in this way as a mind affected by desire, wanting, and a mind unaffected by desire as a mind unaffected by desire. And then the same thing for hatred or aversion, ill will. One understands a mind affected by that and a mind unaffected by it and delusion. One understands a mind affected by delusion One understands a mind unaffected by it. So it's very simple in this teaching. We know if these things are present, if they're not present. We just see in a very bare way the, the way that these kinds of mental qualities or energies affect the mind, color or condition the mind, or what the quality of the mind is when they're not present. So it's this this teaching on mindfulness of mind points to this kind of broad um, sense of the overall quality of the mind or mind-heart, citta, in any moment, as determined by the presence or absence of these kinds of mental factors. There's an excellent book some of you might be familiar with. It's uh, uh, a whole discussion of the Satipatthana Sutta by uh, a scholar and teacher named Bhikkhu Analayo. And uh, he goes through that teaching in a lot of detail, real uh, excellent exploration of it. And he says this in, in that book. It is noteworthy that contemplation of the mind does not involve active measures to oppose unwholesome states of mind, such as lust or anger. Rather, the task of mindfulness is to remain receptively aware by clearly recognizing the state of mind that underlies a particular train of thoughts or reactions. So at least in this place, in this teaching, we're not actively trying to get into some, uh, we're not trying to struggle or work with it or change it. We're just pointed to uh, being aware of the quality there. There are other places where there may be different instructions given. But why would the, why would the Buddha instruct us like this? You know, why would he tell us just to um, be mindful of the presence or absence? You know, wouldn't it make sense to try to get rid of unwholesome stuff, unskillful things? Shouldn't we try to get that out of there? 
So the primary reason is that this non-interfering attitude tends to, um, you could say, decondition a tendency towards some kind of either reactivity or um, suppression denial. That uh, those tendencies are very, very common for us a lot of the time. Uh, Bhikkhu Analaya puts it this way. The habit of employing self-deception to maintain one's self-esteem has often become so ingrained that the first step to developing accurate self-awareness is honest acknowledgement of the existence of hidden emotions, motives, tendencies in the mind without immediately suppressing them. Maintaining non-reactive awareness in this way counters the impulse towards either reaction or suppression regarding unwholesome states of mind and thereby uh, deactivates their emotional and attentional pull. Well, that's kind of technical sounding. But in essence, we could say that the kinds of mental agitation and tension that we often experience regarding the contents of the mind, our thoughts and emotions, mind states that arise, is actually reduced, eventually uh, abandoned, let go of, overcome, not through struggling with what's there, but rather through this simple direct observation. We tend so often to take the contents of our mind very personally, don't we? At least some of the time we fall into that relationship. There's a very strong tendency to identify with it. It's why we tend to get lost there so much of the time. We tend to uh, identify with mind states, emotions, thought patterns. And unfortunately for a lot of us, maybe most of us, but certainly a lot of us, we fall into a habit of also moving from recognition of the presence of these, these things, of an unwholesome, difficult mind state or mental energy, will we'll fall into an attitude of judging it as wrong or bad, bad that it's arising. We then go a step further and judge ourselves as being bad because it has arisen. I am a bad person for having it or it's my, somehow it's, we see it as somehow our fault, some kind of self-condemning where we blame ourselves. And clearly if we were any good at all as a meditator, as a human being, these things wouldn't arise. You know, that it points to some innate flaw in our being, our character. We, we get to that kind of relationship at times quite easily. So when we, as we train ourselves and learn to relate to uh, difficult mental states, mind states, emotional states that come up without um, getting into struggle, but from a place of receptive awareness, sees them for what they are. Then in, in essence, we, we remove a certain kind of fuel that we give to them through the process of identifying and struggle. We, we feed them <laughs> through that. But if we don't feed them, they tend to um, diminish on their own. They gradually lose their power. They don't have to even go away, but their power is at least diminished. 
it's important to bear in mind in this teaching that the Buddha gives um, equal weight to our being aware of uh, when these things are not there. You know, we tend to have our radar out for for things that um, are problematic and and give us trouble, but we're told to really pay attention, see when they're there, see when they're not there. We want to um, see this for one reason that it's important is because when these energies, these unwholesome roots, you could say, any of these um, difficult states are not present, when they're not arising, when they're not temporarily visiting, there's um, the implication that the wholesome counterparts are sort of naturally there, that that's just, uh, uh, they just arise. It points to this sort of luminous mind that the, that uh, in that, those first two statements that I opened the talk with. So um, just as there are unwholesome roots, greed, hatred, delusion, and sort of the broadest sense, there are wholesome roots of non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, or if we want to speak in positive words, we could say generosity, uh, kindness, friendliness, metta, wisdom, clear seeing, compassion, these wholesome uh, ways of the, 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 the uh, wholesome roots. So in essence, in the absence of the unwholesome, the wholesome is, is there naturally this inherent luminous quality of mind. That's just there when it's not obscured. So the point of discerning these wholesome and unwholesome energies or mental uh, qualities is not to judge or blame ourselves or, or them or get into some kind of struggle, but rather learning a different way of relating to them, relating to difficulties that come in our practice. Because so often we're conditioned, really highly conditioned to get into struggle or denial or some way of, or blame, trying to get away from them or trying to battle with them. But we, if we learn a different way of relating, we see them in terms of what leads to suffering, what leads to happiness. There's a kind of wise discernment that can come, seeing them in terms of what's wholesome and unwholesome. And if we see them in this way, and we see the mind as this dynamic process rather than some static thing, we're much less inclined to identify it as some kind of self in there that is endowed with certain inherent intrinsic qualities. We see that it's all a dynamic process of what's arising in the conditions that come through that. And this wise discernment also opens us to the possibility of making wise choices in terms of what energies we want to follow, what motivations or energies in the mind that we want to cultivate and follow and what ones we want to abandon. So it's, we can see in any moment what is, what's running the show. I like to think of it that way. I sometimes use the, the image, what's driving the bus. You know, if greed is running the show in our mind and heart in any moment, it'll go this way. If generosity is, it'll go another way. If wisdom is there, it'll go in a direction of ease and peace. If confusion and, uh, and struggle and uh, ill will are running the show, it'll go that way. 
So nothing is fixed in that. And we get to know these things. We can have a possibility of making choices there. This is from a teacher in Burma of mine, Sayada Ujotika. Freedom really means knowing what is useful, what is beneficial and worthwhile, knowing what is wholesome and what is unwholesome, choosing what is wholesome, good, right, and then doing that wholeheartedly. So this points to a crucial, uh, important, and I think critical understanding for us in terms of what motivates our actions, because it's not just that these energies arise in the mind, but they often form the motivation behind the actions that we take. And if we look around the world, we look in our own lives, we look in the world and all of the, um, what we could say, potentially avoidable suffering that arises, all the wars and strife and struggle and violence, you know, there's so much of that in evidence. What are we seeing there? What is really happening there? These difficult energies of greed, hatred, and delusion are giving rise to actions. They're unseen and they're giving rise to actions. And you know, I think I used this uh, reflection in another talk, but the Buddha spoke very clearly to this in these two famous verses in the Dhammapada. Mind is the forerunner of all things. Mind is their chief, they are all mind made. If with an impure mind one speaks or acts, suffering follows like the wheel of the cart, follows the foot of the ox. Mind is the forerunner of all things. Mind is chief. They're all mind made. If with a pure mind one speaks or acts, happiness follows like one's never departing shadow. It's just pointing to this cause and effect, how this unfolds in our lives. And so for our own happiness, for happiness in the world, a clear seeing of this is is powerful and informs our our lives in a very fundamental kind of way on a basic level. Because we can take responsibility in terms of the motivations we choose to follow, to act upon. And so when we practice mindfulness of mind in this way, that's what we're doing. That's what we're learning to do is seeing what's happening, what's running the show. Is that a good thing? Do I want to follow that? Do I want to let that be the thing that determines the actions I take or, or not? We look and see, we have a choice. If we don't notice this, if we don't see this, we, we don't have a choice. We're just acting out conditioning then. We are very habituated a lot of the time to fall into uh, reactive states when these energies arise. You know, this is, this is something that um, is very, very common for us. We've practiced this a lot. We're good at it. So we really have to see this as a learning, as a training, train ourselves to recognize these things because we're so used to getting lost in struggles. 
We, we're in the struggle, in the reactivity so fast often that we, we overlook the fact that the energy has arisen at all. We're past that. We're already into grappling. We're past the place where we're just seeing what's, what's going on there. So we, we train ourselves. So a good time to, to look at this are times when we find ourselves struggling in our practice, sometime when, when we're in, we find we're in a state of struggle of grappling with something that has arisen. It's a good indication that there's some mind state, mental energy that has arisen in the moment and that we're not seeing it, there's no recognition and there's no acceptance of it. And usually it's one or another of these difficult kinds of energies. And it's a great time to bring in this practice of mindfulness of mind because in the moment, right out of that place of tension and struggle and stress, we can open to a place of freedom. And I, I was, had a very, um, a very striking um, example of this during a retreat I was doing last, or earlier this year, last spring. I was doing a, a retreat uh, at home and um, part of what I was doing was listening to Joseph Goldstein's talks on the Satipatthana Sutta. He did a very extended Um, series of talks, some of you have probably listened to uh, some or all of those. And I was listening to them uh, slowly over this period of these weeks. And, um, but there was one point where I, I found myself struggling with the fact that my mind wasn't behaving the way I wanted it to behave. (laughs) Anyone, I guess that never happens to any of you, but, (laughs) but for me, occasionally it's not, um, doing what I want it to do, (laughs) like being concentrated or calm or peaceful or presenting me with stuff I want to look at that I like or that I think is good, right? That happens to me at least now and then. And, um, And at some point I remembered, ah, I can be mindful that this is the way the mind is right now rather than getting into battle, which is what I was doing. Oh, I can just know it's like this. This mind state is here. In that moment, everything shifted dramatically. It came out of listening to someone talk on this subject. So um, in that moment, it was like a switch and suddenly struggle fell away. I just could see, oh, it's like this now. And in that moment of recognizing and the acceptance of that, the struggle was gone. It wasn't necessarily that that state, that changed too, but that wasn't the getting rid of. (laughs) It still wasn't concentrated or whatever I wanted it to do. But I wasn't in battle because there was clarity in the mind. There was wisdom and clear seeing in the moment. So if we relax a bit, look at what's happening see that something, one of these energies may have arisen, in that moment, we can let go of the struggle. So at times when we're struggling, it can be useful to turn towards and we become aware of one of these, or we notice something's going on, something's messing me up here, whatever it is. It can be useful to turn to it in a couple of ways. One way is what we could call an energetic kind of feeling, maybe in the, really in the body, on the body level cellular kind of level. 
the, the energetic feeling or the feeling in the mind, mind and body, look at both of them there. Because these energies, say of these difficult states, they have a certain uh, quality that can tip us off to what's going on if we're not seeing it clearly. So for example, uh, the feeling of craving, of desire, this strong wanting, often there can often be a kind of heat or even maybe a kind of burning feeling in the mind and the heart, even in the body. And the Buddha often spoke of, of uh, this kind of craving as um, using an image of fire or burning to describe this different places. Aversion or hatred or ill will or resistance. Often there's some kind of tightness or contraction, a contracted energetic feeling with those like being in the grip of a force. And, and this quality of delusion, there's often a, some vague unease that we can't get a handle on, or, or sometimes it's a feeling of being kind of tangled up, entanglement. And, and along with these, there's these kind of energetic movement, this kind of grasping or pulling with craving or desire, strong desire, or a kind of pushing away or retreating from with uh, aversion or ill will. And, a kind of confused wandering feeling when delusion is there, or this sense of tanglement, entanglement. In the Dhammapada, the, ver- the, um, the Buddha said, there is no fire like passion or craving. There is no grip like ill will. There is no net like ignorance, no river like craving, pointing to the, uh, that river image, I think to me points to the sort of um, insatiability, it can t- it, when it's strong, it just flows. It can't be satisfied. It'll look for the next thing to want. There's always a strong wanting. It it's, has an insatiability to it. So as I said, be, said before, just as important as recognizing these kinds of difficult energies is learning to recognize um, their absence when they're not arising. We want to see that too. We can tend to overlook that because we, um, as I said, we're kind of have our radar out for what's problematic more. But we want to know when the mind and the heart are not um, impacted or influenced by these, uh, these difficult states. It's int- we can look one place, we can kind of get a real taste of this, maybe um, quite in a stri- more striking way is when, if a difficult uh, mental quality or energy is present and, and at the time when it falls away, when it, when it does pass away, because eventually they do, even when they seem very strong and persistent, they do disappear at times. For example, let's say there is strong craving has arisen in the mind and the heart. If we're able to turn away from the object, <laughs> the thing that we're focused on towards the energy of it, really feeling that in the mind, in the body, in the heart, how it manifests in these ways. And then notice the moment when it ceases, there's this immediate feeling of release and freedom and ease that comes, a relaxation and ease that arises when that falls away or that is under there, that's there this opening of the heart, this relaxation that comes. So in this teaching with this instruction, the Buddha is saying that these difficult energies are not 
inherently a problem or a mistake, you know, they arise, they're part of the path until we're fully enlightened. Some aspect of some of them is probably going to show up at times. And what we need to do is be aware when they're there, be aware when they're not there. And of course it's easier said than done at times, right? Because our our habits around them is very powerful and we do fall into patterns of reactivity and struggle quite easily. And it's, it goes against our conditioning to, um, to just sit with them when, when we do feel them. You know, it seems like a bad idea and we have a lot of uh, t- habits around thinking that it's not good, you know, they'll get stronger feeling that they may just take us over. But in our meditation, we start to see that that's not actually the case and that if we're willing to meet them, see them as impermanent phenomena that arise and pass, due to conditions, stop feeding them through struggle and reactivity, they start to let go by themselves and their grip on the mind and the heart starts to loosen. And we can even start to be glad when we see them. We may find that we're actually glad to see them because we then have the possibility to not act them out, to relate to them wisely rather than than acting on them and leading to um, suffering and trouble for ourselves, for others in the world. So this first set of instructions in this teaching, one knows the presence or absence of these root causes of uh, struggle, suffering in our lives, of great hatred and and delusion. In the next um, set of instructions, uh, the Buddha says, one understands contracted mind as contracted and distracted mind as distracted. So in uh, at least in, in, in most cases, and, and in, uh, for example, Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation of the Satipatthana Sutta, he says that this, um, this instruction here, this sentence points to uh, in contracted mind, the hindrance of sloth and torpor, dullness, sleepiness, and distracted restlessness. So they're another aspect of these difficult, uh, they're forms of these root kilesas, you could say. But uh, the Buddha specifically pointing to these uh, two, to um, this kind of um, contraction, you could say a state of uh, little or no, little or no energy where there's this withdrawal from what's difficult. That's one of its uh, manifestations is pulling away from what challenges us, pulling away from what's difficult, or sometimes more uh, stubborn or lazy kind of uh, mind quality there that says it's too hard, I can't do it, I don't want to do it. Withdrawing from what's hard. Distracted mind Um, when restless energy is there and the mind is either looking about for something pleasant often, pleasant sense contact, or caught up in worry, regret, turning things over and over in the mind. So the instruction here again is to know whether these are there, to notice if they're there. Notice if the mind is contracted. Oh, contracted mind feels like this. It's like this distracted, restless mind feels like this. So there's this 
realistic acknowledgement of that these things arise and the understanding that in terms of the practice, they don't have to be absent for us to be able to bring mindfulness into practice with them. We don't have to get rid of them. We just have to turn to them wisely, see them. So it really, it, it points to the fact that there's no quality state time when we can't actually bring mindfulness wisely to our experience and practice effectively. Everything is workable ultimately in this way. The next section of this, of the teaching um, has a lot to do specifically with concentration states of different states of concentration, levels of concentration. One knows uh, the exalted mind or the great mind as exalted or great. And one knows the unexalted or narrow, sometimes translated as narrow mind as narrow. And this um, again is specifically uh, is said to point to um, states of concentration when one is doing a pure tranquility or samatha practice, trying to develop strong uh, states of concentration. Um, as well, this sense of great or exalted also um, can be, we can see it in terms of the cultivation of the Brahma Viharas, which are used for concentration at times, and the sense that when they're developed um, and reach a, a high, great state, one is able to pervade a very broad area. One uh, in the teaching, in the suttas, it says, one pervades the all-encompassing world in all directions. Um, So this greatness of the development of the mind through these uh, ways of concentrating the mind. The next part of this says, one knows surpassable mind as surpassable and unsurpassable as unsurpassable. In this case, uh, specifically to do with absorption or jhana practice, if one is practicing in that way, a surpassable mind is, um, there's greater development possible. It can be surpassed. One hasn't developed it fully. Unsurpassable points to um, the, the higher, higher attainment of uh, absorption of jhana, which Uh, For example, the fourth jhana is sometimes referred to as a state of unsurpassable mindfulness and equanimity. It's fully developed in that. So it's talking about these kinds of uh, concentration practices that we sometimes do. Unsurpassable mind also could point to uh, the fully um, awakened mind of an arahant, a fully enlightened being where the mind, heart, it can't be further developed. It's um, the, the mind of a fully awakened being where uh, one reviews, the mind is reviewed, and there's uh, we, these root causes of suffering, they're not there. They're uprooted. They're, they're not arising, and they don't arise in the mind stream at all, this unsurpassable quality there. And then finally in this section, very simply, one knows concentrated mind as concentrated unconcentrated mind is unconcentrated. So all the different ways that we can relate to that. In Vipassana, we have this kanika samadhi, mind where there's concentration, but the objects are changing, momentary kind of concentration, or not. 
We know if it's like that, we know if it's not like that. It doesn't say, and then beat yourself up (laughs) if you don't like what you see. (laughs) Then that's not in the instruction. Get into struggle, get down on yourself, tell yourself what a tragically hopeless yogi you are or whatever, all the things that we can so often tend to do, maybe in more subtle ways, but we fall into those kinds of habits of struggling there. But we can see, oh, it's like this. Sometimes the mind is more quiet, calm, stable, tranquil. Sometimes it's not. But the mindfulness, the, the ability to know that is there. And, and in that moment, that shift, subtle but profound, because suddenly the situation becomes workable if we uh, hold it in the right way. So the important point here then is that we don't have to have a special certain kind of mind there. Quality in the mind. The mind can be refined, concentrated, and sometimes it isn't. And we are instructed to be mindful at both times. We should be mindful at both times. When it's concentrated, when it isn't. When it's collected and calm, when it's not that way. So I hope you're hearing the, the possible, really useful part of this. There's nothing that arises that is inherently, intrinsically a problem. It's all in our relationship to it. Whatever the mind is like, whatever the quality that's there, pay attention, know how it is right now. We can always know it's like this, even if we don't like it even if it's not the way we think it's supposed to be. So it's very liberating and empowering to uh, be able to relate to the mind in this way. And then the final instruction in this mindfulness of mind is also, I think, very um, useful and uh, potentially very powerful. One knows liberated mind as liberated one knows unliberated mind as unliberated. So the liberated mind, we could say, yes, it points to the fully uh, awakened mind of an arahant, a fully enlightened being, freed of these roots of suffering that they've been uprooted. But it also points to times when these energies are not arising those moments also, we want to notice those because they don't always arise. And we all have moments, times, when those difficult energies are not present. They're not there all the time, are they? They might be there a lot, but there are times when they're not arising. Times when, you know, no one is confused, angry, or filled with craving all the time, I don't think. There are times when they fall away. Maybe it's only when we're asleep, I don't know. But they do fall away. They're just visiting energies. And we experience moments when it's just this sense of kind of a pure presence. There's what's arising. There's the mind knowing contact and knowing. This flow of our experience, the knowing of it, without any reactivity, struggle. And at those times we touch this pure, empty, aware, liberated quality, this luminous mind that the Buddha was referring to or pointing to. What you could say is the essential nature of this process that's already aware, that's already free, because it never was any other way. 
And we get a taste of this possibility, this quality of the mind. And we might lose sight of it. We taste this quality of the liberated mind. Maybe we lose sight of it, but that doesn't negate that truth or reality. So the very final, um, there's this refrain that is throughout this teaching of the Satipatthana. It follows uh, most of the sections that um, I'll just touch on it briefly because I'm running out of time here. But one sees, um, one understands these processes, understands this internally in one's own mind and heart, externally as we see it manifesting in the world, in others around us. We see it in terms of its nature of arising, its nature of passing away, both arising and passing away. So we see the impermanent conditioned nature of the process of mind, these forces arising and passing. We see them in this way. And finally, something very, very simple. One knows mindfulness is established that there is mind to the extent necessary for bare attention and continuous mindfulness. So just that in the same way that we can know there is body, we know there is mind. It's this, we can see this process. There is this contacting knowing, just that. That's another aspect of this way we can relate to it. We can know, oh yes, this is mind or minding this process of contact and consciousness arising. We can know it just that, that that's there, that that's happening. We touch it in that very simple way. So this teaching on mindfulness of mind um, and this practice has this potential to lead us to this really um, quite profound shift in the way we relate to the experience, our internal world experience the difficulties that inevitably arise at times in our practice. And, and that these challenging and difficult states have the possibility to be transformed in a moment from obstacles and things that are giving us problems to objects, to vehicles for freedom, for liberation. And we can let go a lot of struggle of fighting with our minds and hearts we get to know them. We know these energies, this process for, we know them for what they are. We know mind, the process of mind for what it is. So I'm gonna end with um, a couple of quotations. The first one is from Ajahn Chah, the famous Thai forest teacher. About this mind, in truth, there is really nothing wrong with it. It is intrinsically pure. Within itself, it is already peaceful. That the mind is not peaceful these days is because it follows moods. The real mind doesn't have anything to it. It is simply an aspect of nature. It becomes peaceful or agitated because moods deceive it. Sense impressions come and trick it into happiness, suffering, gladness, and sorrow. But the mind's true nature is none of these things. Gladness or sadness is not the mind, but only a mood coming to deceive us. The untrained mind gets lost and follows these things. It forgets itself. And then we think it is we who are upset or at ease or whatever. 
But really this mind of ours is already unmoving and peaceful, really peaceful. If we know fully the nature of sense impressions, we will be unmoved. Our practice is simply to see the original mind. We must train the mind to know these sense impressions and not get lost in them. Just this is the aim of all this difficult practice we put ourselves through. And this uh, from Sayada Utejaniya. Because the mind is covered by defilements, we are unable to see Dhamma or to understand nature as it is. Whatever is happening in the present moment is nature, is Dhamma. Even defilements become Dhamma, become nature. Nature is arising, knowing is arising, and awareness is arising. Object and mind, object and mind. In nature, there's nobody there. Nature is not us, not them, not other. Nature is just nature. Dhamma is ever present and there is Dhamma talk everywhere. Nature is always teaching us Dhamma, but we are unable to hear. If we can see nature as it really is, the mind is free. I will just take a moment of quiet and uh, then we'll do some chanting to end the evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.